from the FLI Audio Files. I'm Arielle Kahn with the Future of Life Institute. Much of the time, when we hear about attempts to predict the future, it conjures images of fortune tellers and charlatans. But in fact, we can fairly accurately predict that not only will the sun come up tomorrow, but also at what time. And speaking of the sun, we've known about the eclipse that's coming up in August for quite a while, but we won't know whether cloud coverage will interfere with local viewing until much closer to the actual event. As popular as mindfulness and living in the present have become, most of us still live very much in the future, with nearly every decision we make being based on some sort of prediction we've made, either consciously or subconsciously. On a larger scale, forecasting plays an important role in our lives in everything from predicting trends in finance to fashion. But especially as emerging technologies like artificial intelligence get stronger and more capable, it becomes increasingly important for us to predict and anticipate how things might change for humanity in the future, and whether these changes are something we want to work for or actively avoid. To address how and why we want to improve society's ability to predict future trends, I have with me Anthony Aguirre and Andrew Critch. Anthony is a professor of physics at the University of California at Santa Cruz. He's one of the founders of the Future of Life Institute, And in an earlier collaboration with FLI co-founder Max Tegmark, he founded the Foundational Questions Institute, which supports research on fundamental questions in physics and cosmology. Most recently, he's co-founded Metaculus, which is an online effort to crowdsource predictions about the future of science and technology. Andrew is currently on a two-year leave of absence from MIRI to work with UC Berkeley's Center for Human-Compatible AI. During his PhD, he co-founded the Center for Applied Rationality and Spark. Previously, Andrew has worked as an algorithmic stock trader at James Street Capital. His current research interests include logical uncertainty, open source game theory, and avoiding race dynamics between nations and companies in AI development. Anthony and Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks. Nice to be here. Me too. To start, I want to sort of get a better feel for essentially what predictions are. What are the hallmarks of a good prediction? How does that differ from just guessing? When we're looking at things like the upcoming eclipse, where we know the eclipse will happen, but we don't know what the weather will be like, how do predictions differ in those different situations? Anthony, maybe we can start with you. Okay. So I think I would say that there are maybe four aspects to a good prediction. One, I would say, is that it should be specific and and sort of well-defined and unambiguous in the sense that if you predict something that's going to happen, then when, you know, the uh, appropriate amount of time has passed, everyone should agree on whether that thing has happened or not, or what the answer to the question that you asked was. So there shouldn't, you shouldn't have some sort of controversy as to whether the thing that you were making a prediction on has come to pass. And this can be surprisingly difficult to do because often there are many, many different possible ways, you know, the future can be. And and there are things that you might not have thought of that will intervene between you and sort of the thing that you've been predicting. So, so one thing I think is to, to have a very clear definition of what is the thing that you're predicting, what is the number you're predicting or the event that you're predicting, and under what circumstances will you say that has happened or not happened, or what exactly the value of that thing that you're predicting will be. So specificity and well-definedness, I guess, is I think one aspect. The second I would say is that it should be probabilistic. Um, there's sort of a, a well-known saying in, in experimental science that if there's no error bar on a number, then the number is totally meaningless. And that's, that's right. Um, if you don't know what the error bar is, the answer really could be anything. 
And then similarly saying, you know, I think it's going to rain tomorrow, different people will interpret that in dramatically different ways. Some people might take that as being, you know, it's 90% likely to rain tomorrow, some it might be 51% likely to rain. So what a really good prediction is, is a probability for something happening or a probability distribution, that is a probability assigned to each possible outcome of something happening. And that's something that you can really use and kind of get an actual meaning out of when you're going to make decisions. The third thing I think a prediction should be is precise in principle. So for example, if you say, is it gonna to rain tomorrow? Well, I'll give it a 50% chance. You know, is team X gonna win game Y? Well, I'll give it a 50% chance. In a sense, you could, if you give everything a 50% chance, you'll sort of never be terribly wrong, but you'll also never be terribly right. So predictions are really interesting to the extent that they give a, a fairly narrow distribution of possibilities or to the extent that they say something is either very likely or very unlikely. What you would like to do is say, that event has a 0% chance, that event, you know, or a 1% chance, that event has a 99% chance and be able to do that for lots of different things. In practice, we often can't get to that sort of precision and we'll end up saying, well, it's, you know, 60% chance or 30% chance. So, so precision is what we would aim for. But to counterbalance that, I think the fourth criterion I would say is that you want to be well calibrated, meaning that if there are 100 things that you predict with 90% confidence, around 90% of those things should come true. Or if there are you know, 100 things and you predict them with 50% confidence, around 50 of those should come true. So what you don't want to have is say, I'm making tons of predictions that this is 99% likely to happen and then have a bunch of those things not happen. That's a very poorly calibrated set of predictions, and that will lead people badly astray if they listen to what you're predicting. And those two things, the precision and the calibration, kind of play off against each other because it's easy to be well calibrated if you just sort of randomly give everything 50% chance. Uh, it's easy to be precise by giving everything like either a very high or very low probability, but it's very difficult to be both about the future. And so... Well, Andrew, I wanted to ask you about your experience in finance and how that relates to these four areas that Anthony just brought up in terms of trying to make predictions. Sure. Yeah, thanks. Um, so actually, I had a few general replies and chimes I want to say to Anthony there. So of the properties, Anthony said being specific, meaning it's clear what the prediction is saying and when it will be settled. I think people really don't appreciate how psychologically valuable that is. Because, you know, of course, if you want to settle a bet, you want to be specific about how to settle it. But if you also want to install a mental reflex to check in the future whether your own thinking or your own perspective was correct on something, if you have a very specific trigger, like I think tomorrow at 5 p.m., John will not be at the party, then now when 5 p.m. comes, it sort of jumps out at you. You're reminded, oh, yes, there is this a specific time when I'm supposed to check and see if my past state of mind regarding John was correct. And a person who does that regularly creates a feedback mechanism for learning to trust certain states of mind more than others. For example, they might learn that when they're feeling angry at John, they make miscalibrated predictions about John. They'll tend to exaggerate John's unreliability or something like that. And they'll say things like, I'm sure he's definitely not going to be at the party. And then if they really, you know, if, if you install that trigger, you'll have a concrete sense of personal accountability to yourself about whether you were right. 
And I think a person who does that regularly is just going to learn to make better predictions. So I think people really undervalue the extent to which the specificity property of prediction is not just a property of the prediction, but also part of your own training as a predictor. So just like big plus one to that property of prediction. And of course, absolutely, you need to use probabilities. And of course, yes, it's hard to get precise predictions, meaning predictions with probabilities close to zero or 100%. But the last property that Anthony said being calibration is, if you think about it, it's really not just a property of a prediction, it's a property of a predictor like a source of predictions or a person. So you can look at any individual prediction and say that prediction was precise. It involved probabilities. It has specific settlement conditions. But you can't really just look at a single prediction and say that was a calibrated prediction because calibration is a property of averages. If you say, I'm 90% sure that John will be late and then John is early, well, were you right or were you wrong? And the answer is, well, you were, you were kind of wrong, but you weren't completely wrong. You had certainly assigned 10% chance to John being late. And you would have been more wrong if you said you were 99% sure. And you would have been less wrong if you'd said only 50%. So there's like degrees of wrongness. And you are calibrated if, you're, you know, if your probabilities on average match your success rate on average. And you really need a suite of predictions to assess calibration. So I think a good predictor is somebody who strives for calibration while also trying to be precise uh, and get their probabilities as close to zero and one as they can. And in finance, you know, if you want to, coming back to your question, Ariel, if you want to make money, you have to stick your neck out. You have to make a bet that nobody else was willing to make because if they had already made the bet, the price would have already adjusted to reflect that. So if I want to bet that Apple stock is going up, well, everyone who already thought Apple stock is going up has bought Apple stock and everybody who already thought it's going down has sold Apple stock. And so I have to think I have to think I know something or I've reasoned or discovered something that no one else does in order to make that prediction. And I'm really sticking my neck out at that point. I'm thinking, you know, I think that the price of Apple stock is going to go up with 51% probability and everyone else thinks it's going to go up with 50.5% probability. And if I repeat this a lot of times, I'll make some money. And it's it's a very precise claim in total to say that on average, this particular stock trade is going to make money because it's really when you run a trading strategy, you're making a large number of predictions over and over all at once. And to say that you think that that is going to make money is a very bold claim. And that's related to what Anthony called precision. But you might think of it as just like a more general property of being bold enough to to really know when you're wrong and to really stick your neck out and get some credit, be it like winning in the stock market or just kudos from your friends who recognize you made an awesome prediction when you're right. And so how are you using external data to make that prediction versus just guessing or using intuition? I think that's sort of the idea of the external data also comes back to the question about knowing that the eclipse will happen versus not knowing what the weather will be like yet. So I don't think I would agree with that distinction. Like, we have plenty of external data on the weather. The problem is that we know from experience that weather data is very unpredictable. And we know from experience that the locations of planets and moons and stars are predictable. This is how we learn to trust Newtonian mechanics, but we've not yet learned to trust any particular theories of fluid dynamics, which is what you'd need to model the weather. So I wouldn't say that external data is what separates weather prediction from eclipse prediction. I would say that it's lack of a reliable, a reliable model for making the prediction or a reliable method. And so I would try to reorient the conversation not to what's a good prediction, 
but what's a good process for making predictions? That's what allows you to ask questions of calibration. And it's what allows you to determine which experts to trust because you can assess what their process is and ask, does this person follow a process that I would expect to yield good predictions? And that's a different question from, is that a good prediction or not? Yeah, and I, I certainly would agree with, and in particular in terms of the eclipse and the weather, agree that, that it's all about what is the, the physical model underlying the prediction. And there's a sense in which fundamentally both of those things are almost exactly the same you know, from a physics perspective, that you have some set of initial conditions, which are, you know, positions of some material objects, or, you know, conditions of the fluid of the atmosphere and the oceans and so on, and a whole bunch of spots, but you have some set of well-defined initial conditions that you can know by making a set of measurements, then you have a, a known set of physical laws that evolve those initial conditions to some later state. And then you could just know what that later state is given that mathematical model. And if you're being good about being probabilistic, you would then also say, because I have some uncertainties in my initial conditions, that I'm not just going to run one model, I'm going to run a whole suite of models with a whole set of different initial conditions reflecting those uncertainties. And by using that whole suite of models, I get a whole range of predictions, and I can then assess those and turn that into a probability distribution for what is actually going to happen. And that's done in, in both of those cases. So for the eclipse, you know, there is an incredibly accurate prediction of the eclipse you know, this coming August, but there is actually some tiny little bit of uncertainty in it that you basically don't see because it's such an accurate prediction and we know so precisely where the planets are. If you look you know, a thousand years ahead, predictions of eclipses are still amazingly accurate, but the uncertainty is a little bit bigger. You know, so, so there won't be quite as narrow of a distribution on how long you know, the duration of an eclipse will be at some particular point, because there are little bits of uncertainty that get propagated through the process. And when you look at weather, there's lots of uncertainty because we don't have some measurement device at every position measuring every temperature and density of the atmosphere and, and the water at every point on Earth. So there's just some uncertainty in the initial conditions. And then the, even worse, the physics that you then use to propagate that amplifies lots of those uncertainties, initial uncertainties, into bigger uncertainties later on. So that's the hallmark of a chaotic physical system, which the atmosphere happens to be. Even if you had a very good model for how to do the physics, it wouldn't really help in terms of getting rid of that chaotic dynamics. And all the, the only thing that will help is getting better and better data and better and better resolution in your simulation. And then you can get you know, predictions that are accurate going from an hour out to maybe a day out to a few days out, but you're never gonna get you know, weather predictions that are accurate two weeks or a month or something, it's just not going to be possible. So it's an interesting thing that the different physical systems are so different in their predictability. And then when you get to other systems like social systems, it gets even harder. Or systems like the financial one that Andrew was discussing, which actually sort of have a built-in ability to defeat predictions, right? The, the problem with predicting the stock market is exactly what he said, that if you if you're trying to predict the stock market, so is everybody else. And the prices adjust to sort of make it as difficult as possible to predict, you know, what's going to happen in the future in the stock market. So there are systems that are just hard to predict. And then there are systems like stocks, which in some sense already represent the best possible prediction, but in some sense, figuring out what the stock is going to do is something that very, very strongly resists precise prediction. Because if you had that, you know, anybody who has that would then use it 
and then affect the stock. And, and so that self-referential aspect to it makes it very, very difficult. I think that's like a really important thing for people to realize about predicting the future, because I think they see the stock market, they see how unpredictable it is, and they know that the stock market has something to do with the news. It has something to do with what's going on in the world. And so if you see how hard it is to predict the stock market, that must mean that the world itself is extremely hard to predict. But I think that's an error. The reason the stock market is hard to predict is because of what Anthony says. It is a prediction, and predicting what's wrong with a prediction is hard. If you've already made a prediction, predicting what is wrong about your prediction is really hard, because if you knew that, you would have just made that part of your prediction to begin with. And that's something to meditate on. The world is not always as hard to predict as the stock market. I can predict that there's going to be a traffic jam tomorrow on the commute from the East Bay to San Francisco between the hours of 6 a.m. and 10 a.m. I can predict that with high confidence. It will happen. It will keep happening. And that's a social system, which I'll raise to, to sort of push back a little bit on the full generality of what Anthony just claimed. I think some aspects of social systems are actually very easy to predict. You can also make very easy predictions about the stock market that aren't actually built into the stock market prediction. For example, I can predict the volatility of a stock. I can predict that a stock is going to go up and down a lot of times this month and be right about that. I can even say things like, I think that between 45 and 55% of movements in a stock on a one-second time scale are going to be up over the next month, which is a kind of a it might seem like a bold claim. It might seem like I'm saying the stock is going to stay the same, but you know the, the moves have different sizes. And on average, I expect if you know if you count the moves in Apple stock over the next month over one second time intervals, I'm quite confident that the number of those moves that are upward is between 45 and 55 percent. And that's because no one's betting on that already, and there's no mechanism for baking that particular prediction into the price of Apple stock. So the market is not designed to thwart that particular prediction. And you know, the Bay Bridge is not designed to thwart my prediction that there will be a traffic jam on it, unfortunately. So I do want to caution that sometimes people think the future is harder to predict than it is because they might conflate, you know, certain aspects of the future that are hard to predict, like the weather, with other aspects that are easy to predict, like an eclipse. And even combinations of hard to predict phenomena, like an individual human driver, might be very hard to predict. If you just see someone driving down the highway, you might have no idea where they're headed. But if you see, you know, 10,000 people driving down the highway, you might blur your eyes and, and get a strong sense of, you know, whether there's going to be a traffic jam soon or not. And uh, so sometimes unpredictable phenomena can add up to predictable phenomena. And I think that's a really important feature of, of making good long-term predictions with complicated systems. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I, if I gave the implication that social systems are sort of inherently unpredictable in, in the same way as, as weather is, I would like to not make that assertion. <laughs> I figured, I, I figured. Um, and, and it's often said that climate is more predictable than weather. And that's quite true also for the same sorts of reasons. Although the, the individual you know, fluctuations day to day are difficult to predict, it's, it's very easy to predict that in general, you know, winter in the northern hemisphere is going to be colder than the summer. Right. So, so there are lots of statistical regularities that emerge when you average over large numbers. We have a whole science you know, called statistical mechanics, which is all about coming up with statistical descriptions of things where on the individual level they're unpredictable. So it would be, for example, very difficult to predict what some individual molecule in the air in, in this room is doing, given all its interactions with the other air molecules and so on. 
you'd lose track of it very, very quickly if you were trying to predict it precisely. And yet the prediction of what the air in the room in general will do under certain circumstances is really quite easy, um, or at least fairly straightforward, you know, in some circumstances, like if you put all the air in the, in the corner of the room, what will it do? Will it expand to fill the room? Now, trying to figure out what it will do, you know, when it's more complicated thing, like as it, when it's part of weather is more difficult. So I think the point is that there are many subtleties to this and things that are can be very easy to predict individually might be difficult when you combine many of them or things that are very difficult to predict individually might become easier when there are lots of them. And it really will depend on the system that you're trying to make the prediction for. So I'd like to take all of that and transition to the question of what artificial intelligence will be like in the future. That's something that all of us are interested in and concerned about as we're trying to understand what the impact of artificial intelligence will be on humanity. How do we consider what would be a complex prediction? What's a simple prediction? What sort of information do we need to do this? You know, one of the best methods of prediction for, for lots of things is just simple extrapolation. There are many physical systems that once you can discern that they have a trend, you can fit a pretty simple function to a linear function or maybe an exponential and actually do pretty well a lot of the time. So, so there are things where a lot of prediction can be gleaned you know, fairly easily by just getting the right set of data and fitting a simple function to it and seeing where it's going to go in the future. Now, this obviously has dangers, but it's, it's a lot better than, than just sort of guessing or waving your hands. And, and in many cases, is pretty comparable to much more sophisticated methods. So when, it, when you're talking about artificial intelligence, there are some quite hard aspects to predict, but there are also some relatively easy aspects to predict, like looking at the amount of funding that's being given to artificial intelligence research or the computing power and computing speed and efficiency following Moore's law and variance of it. You know, you can sort of look closely at what exact exponential will be followed or whether it will, the exponential will turn you know, something else even out or something, but you won't do badly, at least that has been the case up until now, you won't do badly sort of extrapolating some exponential to some of these things. And that would be a pretty good mainline prediction. So that while there are things, you know, we can say we have no idea what they'll be like in five years, I think we have a pretty good idea, for example, that, you know, computing power will be significantly better by maybe a factor of eight or something in some metric if it's sort of three doubling times, according to some version of Moore's law. But, so there, this is a multifaceted problem, but there, I think there are aspects that fairly simple methods could be applied to, and not even that has been done all that well, you know, or put together really cleanly in one place, although some people are trying, I think. Yeah, I think if, if I imagine someone listening to these podcasts and, you know, reading about a prediction you know, like just like a linear extrapolation or a log linear extrapolation of hardware progress that says, you know, we're going to keep doubling. When Anthony and I discussed earlier that weather is hard to predict, neither of us said this, but I imagine we were both secretly thinking about some results we know from a field of math called chaos theory, which sometimes you can use to mathematically prove that a certain system, if it behaves according to certain laws, is unpredictable, which is interesting. People often think of mathematics as like a source of certainty, but sometimes you can be certain that you are uncertain, or you can be certain that you can't be certain about something else. And weather is just one of those things that 
we like have a high degree of certainty because of some things we know about mathematics that tell us that weather probably is just going to remain difficult to predict. And there's mathematical reasons for it that make us think that we're not going to like discover a better measurement device that just makes weather prediction easily. So in the same way that Anthony and I, I predict, and you can, <laughs> you can call me on this prediction, I predict that Anthony will admit to have thinking about this mathematical fact while he was talking about the weather just now. Guilty. Um, guilty, yep, called it. Um, so in the same way, when you use you know, a simple trend like Moore's Law to predict hardware, you should ask yourself what simple underlying mathematical rules might be driving Moore's Law. Moore's Law is a summary of what you see from a very complicated system, namely a bunch of companies and a bunch of people working to build smaller and faster and cheaper and more energy efficient hardware. That's a very complicated system that somehow adds up to a fairly simple behavior like Moore's Law in the same way that a very complicated system of stressed out individual drivers going to different jobs with different salaries and different reasons for their jobs are all driving to the city for some reason and exhibiting this fairly predictable traffic jam every morning. Somehow, these small-scale, complicated phenomena can add up to a predictable one. So if you want to use Moore's Law to make predictions in the long term, you can, you can ask yourself, what are the small-scale phenomena that are allowing Moore's Law to continue? You could actually think about that. And when I was in finance, we, really, we tried really hard to always ask ourselves when we found a trend, we analyzed a bunch of data, we found a trend, it looks like that trend's gonna make us some money, but we always ask ourselves, what is adding up to this trend? What are the parts, what's the analog of the individual drivers on the highway or the hardware engineers at IBM that are adding up to this trend? And if you can at least have a guess as to what that trend is, you might realize that the trend's not gonna continue for some important reason. So in the case of Moore's Law, you can think, well, the reason it's getting smaller is because we're using smaller things to build smaller tools to make smaller things, to understand smaller things, to build smaller tools to make smaller things, etc. You can actually sort of visualize the smallification of things in such a way that when you take into account your knowledge of physics, you realize that it's got to stop getting smaller at some point. So, so we know that there has to be a point at which Moore's Law will stop, and that's because we have some understanding of the smaller phenomena, namely engineers trying to make things smaller, pardon the pun, um, that add up to the larger scale phenomena of like generally making progress at making smaller, faster, cheaper hardware. So I think, to use your phrase, a hallmark of good prediction is when you find a trend, the first question you should ask yourself is like, what is giving rise to this trend? And can I expect that to continue? Does that make sense to me? And that's a bit of an art. It's kind of more art than science, but it's, it's a critical art because otherwise we end up blindly following trends that are bound to fail. Yeah. So I think that actually moves me into the next question that I want to ask. We, we've been talking about what's involved in making a good prediction, and I want to ask a little bit more about who is making the prediction. I mean, with AI, for example, we're seeing very smart people in the field of AI who are predicting that AI will make life great and others are worried that it will destroy us. With existential risks in general, one of the things we see are a lot of surveys and efforts in which experts in the field try to predict the odds of whether or not humans will go extinct um, or whether some disaster will happen in the next 10 years or 100 years. And I'm wondering how much can we rely on experts in the field, in quotes? So. I can certainly tell you that 
thinking for 30 consecutive minutes about what could cause human extinction is much more productive than thinking for one consecutive minute. And it's interesting to note that very few people I know have actually thought for more than 30 consecutive minutes at any given time about what could lead to human extinction. There are a lot of people who have thought about it for 30 seconds at a time, maybe 30 seconds at a time 60 times or more at cocktail parties, at the bus stop, watching a movie, whatever. But those 30 seconds might be the same 30 seconds of thought every time. And when you give yourself time to think a little bit longer, you can rule out some very basic, obvious conclusions. For example, people often will think, you know, asteroids are an existential risk. It's so available, we've seen it in movies. But asteroids, if you think about it for you know, a little bit, like maybe three whole minutes, you'll realize that, well, asteroids are still following the same rules that they were following last century and the century before that. And we've had so many centuries now that we see a pattern, which is that, you know, asteroids don't cause human extinction every year. In fact, for a large number of years, we've seen no human extinction caused by asteroids. And it seems very unlikely that we'll see human extinction caused by an asteroid in the next 100 years. Now, will it ever happen? Yes, but those things happen very infrequently. And in the same way you can predict an eclipse, you can predict that an asteroid is almost certainly not going to cause human extinction this century. I would bet, you know, 99.99% chance that we will not be extinct from an asteroid impact. And such a basic conclusion can just slip by if you don't think for, if you don't seriously think in an intellectually serious manner about what could or could not cause human extinction, that, well, I worry that people associate extinction with movies and fiction in such a way that, that they don't sufficiently connect their reasoning and their logic with their discussions of extinction. And you can, you the listener can easily verify from listening to me speak that it would be a mistake to think that asteroids will cause human extinction this century. But I claim that there are other harder to notice mistakes about human extinction predictions that you probably can't figure out from 30 seconds of reasoning or three minutes of reasoning. But if you think about it for an hour, it's enough to figure out that certain threats to human extinction are really not to be concerned about. For example, a naturally occurring virus, I think, is extremely unlikely to cause human extinction. That's a thing that will take a longer argument to convince you of than my claim that asteroids will not cause human extinction. But I do want to proffer that there are sloppy and careful ways of reasoning about human extinction, and not everyone's being sloppy about it. So that's something to watch for, because not everyone who's an expert, say, in nuclear engineering is also an expert in reasoning about human extinction, or not everyone who is an expert in artificial intelligence is an expert in reasoning about human extinction. And so you have to be careful who you call an expert, and you have to be careful not to just sort of blindly listen to surveys of people who might claim to be an expert in a field and be right in that claim, but maybe who haven't ever in their life sat down for 60 consecutive minutes with a piece of paper to reason through scenarios that could lead to human extinction. And I think without having put in that effort, a person can't claim to be an, an expert in, in any human extinction risk, I think, in any plausible human extinction risk, I should say. Yeah, and, and I think that I really agree. And I, I also feel that something similar is true about prediction in general, that making predictions about things is greatly aided if you have like domain knowledge and expertise in the thing that you're making a prediction about. But that's sort of somewhat necessary, but, but far from sufficient to make accurate predictions. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the experiences that 
I've seen, you know, running Metaculus and seeing things that are happening on it is that there are people that know a tremendous amount about a subject and just are terrible at making predictions about it. And, and other people who, even if their actual domain knowledge is lower, the fact that they are comfortable with statistics, that they've had practice making predictions and checking themselves and thinking about their own biases and uncertainties and so on, are just much, much better at it. So I think ideally it would be nice to, to sort of combine the level of domain expertise that some of these surveys take with a sort of selection on people who are actually good at predicting. And that's, that's a difficult thing to do. That's something that we're sort of aspiring to do. But it makes me take the results you know, with a pretty big grain of salt because I know how difficult it can be to make predictions about things even when you know all about them if you're not just used to making predictions and, think, and, and sort of going through that process and thinking rather carefully about them. And the fact that I know lots about black holes, you know, for example, from, from my physics research, if you then ask me, what is the probability that this paper about black holes will get this many citations? Well, I might throw out a number, but it's going to be a pretty poor number compared to someone who knows nothing about black holes, but has actually counted typical numbers of citations of papers of certain people and how you know, citations grow with time and so on. Someone who knows nothing about black holes could do a much better job than me at making that prediction if they've actually put in the time and homework to figuring out how to predict citations well. Now, if I had those techniques and I knew the field and I knew what ideas were interesting in black holes and so on, then I could probably do a better job than them. But I do think that both aspects really are quite important. And it's not clear that a lot of the discussion about making predictions in the future of technology really leverages both. And so, Anthony, with Metaculus, one of the things that you're trying to do is get more people involved in predicting. What is the benefit of having more people participating in these predictions? Well, I would say there are a few benefits. So, so one is that lots of people get the benefit of practice. So I think just, you know, Andrew was talking earlier about the sort of personal practice of thinking about a prediction that you have and then checking whether it comes true or not, and then circling back and saying, you know, why was I so wrong on this? Or, and, you know, thinking about things that you tend to be more wrong on and what they might correlate with and so on. That's incredibly useful and, and sort of makes you a more effective person if you do that. And so one thing that I hope is that the people who use Metaculus and sort of stick with it and actually make their precise predictions and make them probabilistic and then find out, you know, how are they doing, we'll get that sort of feedback that will make them better at it. So, it, so I think in terms of personal growth, it's sort of a, an interesting thing. In terms of actually creating accurate predictions, the more people you have doing it, I think there are two benefits. One is that, you know, you'll have more people who are really good at it. So if, you know, you know if you have 10,000 people doing something and you just take the the top 1% of them in terms of effectiveness, now you have 100 people, which is a lot better than, you know, if you have one person doing it where the chances is, you know, one in 100 that you'll even get someone who's good. So just sheer numbers, along with an ability to identify who is actually good at predicting, means that you can then sort of figure out who who is good at predicting and who is good at predicting a particular type of thing, and then use the predictions from them. And one of the interesting things that we've seen and has been showed previously is that there is a skill, you know, it isn't just luck. You might, you know, suppose that the people who have a good prediction track record just got lucky again and again, you know, and, and the fraction will get smaller and smaller people who get lucky again and again. But in fact, that's not true. There is, of course, luck, but 
there's a identifiable you know ability where if you look at the people who have done really well up until some time and and then look at how those people do compared to other people who didn't do as well up to, until some time on future predictions you know it is a good predictor if you will of of who's a good predictor <laughs> um, so so there is a skill that people can develop and and obtain and then can be relied upon in the future so part of the hope is that getting enough people involved you can then figure out who are the really good people and then the third and maybe this is the most important is is just statistics so it it's true that aggregating lots of people's predictions tends to make a more accurate aggregate as long as you do it reasonably well even just taking the median turns out to be better than almost everybody as an individual predictor as it turns out but if you do a better job of it you can do even better and so there's a genuine so Anthony when when you say doing a better job of of taking the median do you mean like somehow identifying good predictors and using them or giving them more weight or what sort of techniques yes. do you have yes. in mind so there's a couple of things so so a couple of things we've experimented with in work are one is just giving people a greater weight if they've done better in the past so that's definitely helpful a second is once you have enough people who have made enough predictions you can also sort of take the calibration that they have which is sometimes good and sometimes not so good and you can fix it right so so we can now see you know typically when people predict say 95% probability of something it's actually more like 80% you know this is a well known cognitive bias of it's called overconfidence but it's probably several different things but once you have enough people that you have a good statistical model of that overconfidence then you can undo it you know you can correct for it in a actually quite useful way so we've experimented with a few different things one is sort of recalibration one is weighted predictions both of those are quite helpful and can do a lot better than the median as it turns out or the mean or something else so anthony when i if i log into metaculus and i see like the house odds on a certain prediction like who's going to win an election are those yeah. odds derived from one of your one of your favorite techniques for aggregating the market participants or is it just like a or or are those techniques experimental and not part of like the mainline website right now we've just rolled out so right now if you get in you can if the question is still open for prediction then what you'll see is just the median but once it's closed and no nobody else is predicting then we show the the more carefully aggregated prediction and we do that so that you know it won't create sort of a feedback process where everybody's just piling on the better calibrated better computed prediction we could think about that in the future but right now we've rolled out a more accurate one that you can see for questions that are no longer open for prediction it'd be really interesting to think about what the equilibrium would be if if there's any you know aggregation mechanism such that when you share it it doesn't wreck itself <laughs> <laughs> yes it would that'd be that'd be amazing so is there anything else that people should know about metaculus while we're still on the topic i think the main thing that people should know about metaculus is just that it exists and that it's an effort to sort of do a better job of making predictions about things that are for which a, a sort of already existing mechanism of making that prediction doesn't exist so if you're interested in sort of the value of some company you're best looking at the stock market and and not something like metaculus if you're interested in the eclipse you're best consulting nasa and their eclipse tables but there are lots of things for which there is not a pre-existing way of making a, an accurate prediction about it and it's a 
it's an effort to sort of create a general purpose platform for doing that by taking people who are still are, you know, the best prediction machines by far that, that exist and combining their abilities. So I, I would just encourage people to check it out and if they like it and enjoy it to sort of take part in it. Okay. I would also just like to say that I think the existence of, of systems like Metaculus are going to be really important for society improving its ability to understand the world because you know, there are very crude ways of putting opinions together, like let's just have a vote. And maybe that's a good way of sharing power because everybody gets an equal share of power, but it might not be a good way of sharing reasoning because maybe not everybody has thought about like a scientific question for the same length of time. If, if we conducted a vote on you know, whether global warming was real, there may have been a time when the vote would have decided that it wasn't. And of course, fortunately, now that's not the case anymore. But it's interesting to notice why it is that the wisdom of the crowds not only sometimes fails, but fails in a predictable way. There are questions that you can actually predict that the crowd will be wrong about if you think about whether or not the crowd has any reason to think about the question. And if a question is hard and everyone has had a chance to think about it for an hour, you know, a, a solid hour, and you might think that the crowd is going to have some wisdom about it. But if there's a question you know is hard and you know for some reason everyone's too busy to think about it, like human extinction, for example, you might not actually think the wisdom of the crowds is going to be so wise. Uh, it might be more wise than an individual, as Anthony said, a random individual, but it probably isn't nearly as wise as what you'd get if you do what Anthony says and pull together some people who you know are good at prediction and ask them, or if you pull together some people just that you know have actually thought at length about the issue, which is different, again, from being an expert in some field. It's the just whether or not you've put in the time. And I think if you look whose job it is, whose job is it to think for a solid hour about a human extinction risk? The answer is almost nobody. So while it is someone's job to predict the stock market and it is someone's job to predict a patient's health and so on, there are many kinds of predictions that, you know, someone is on deck to actually think about. And so we get people who are good at those predictions. There are very few people in the world whose job it is to become good at predicting threats to human civilization at large. And so we ought not to expect that just averaging the wisdom of the crowds is going to do super well on answering a question like that compared to pulling the opinions of, of people that you know have thought at length about the question. So I'm not sure if this is along the same lines or not. I want to bring it back to artificial intelligence quickly and the question of timelines, because I know a lot of people have actually thought about timelines, when certain capabilities will be available, when AI will displace too many jobs, when it will achieve human-level intelligence and exceed human-level intelligence. And I guess I'm curious is how helpful is it for us to try to make predictions? Who should be trying to make those predictions? Can we expect them to be very accurate? How can we make them more accurate? Is it something we should all be worrying about or should certain people be worrying about it? I mean, I certainly see this happening in the field of AI, kind of what Anthony said where, you know, domain expertise is necessary for good prediction, but not at all sufficient. You need to put in the time to your homework. And you know, I, I see people making predictions like, uh, you know, we're most likely to get artificial intelligence from, say, scanning a human brain and running a simulation of that brain, which on the surface, you know, it has a reasonable argument for it. It makes sense that a lot of things that we've built, we've copied from nature. So it makes sense that we could copy intelligence from nature too, namely our brain. But if you actually, you know, plot out a timeline, like just draw on a piece of paper, what 
you think is going to be on, be going on each decade between now and when you think we'll have, say, scanned and run a simulated copy of a human brain. It's interesting to ask, what do you think was going on in the decade before that? If you force yourself to go through this mental exercise, you will, okay, if you think in your fictitious future, in your fictitious timeline, we'll have a scanned, uploaded human brain in the year 2090, then if you force yourself to the exercise, you're now asking, what's happening in 2080? And well, the answer is, somehow we're close. Somehow we've got lots of scanning technology. We've got lots of computer hardware that's sufficient to run simulated copies of entire human brains. And to say that the first thing, the first computer system that ever matches human general intelligence will arise in 2090 from scanning a brain is also to assert logically that it will not have arisen in 2080 from other advances that could come from that same brain scanning technology and that same computer hardware. And that's where it starts to get a little awkward. You, you, you sort of have a little more difficulty holding that hypothesis in your mind when you visualize the whole timeline because once we can scan a brain in full resolution and simulate the entire thing, it could mean that a decade prior we gained a lot of insight into, say, how the basal ganglia work or how the cortex worked or how various brain regions worked. I find it a little hard to imagine that we'll get all the way to scanning an entire human brain and simulating it without having managed to pull out some components of the brain and hack them together you know, in an engineering effort to do just as well. So it's, of course, logically possible, but somehow the exercise of forcing yourself to work through the logic of how and why certain timelines could arise, sort of, it can change what on the surface seems like uh, you know, a reasonable guess. And I think this is an extremely valuable exercise for the world to be carrying out. Do I want everyone to do this? No. Do I want every AI researcher or even every AI safety or control researcher to be doing this? No. In fact, I now have made a career shift to trying to design control mechanisms for highly intelligent AI. And I, I made that career shift based on my own personal forecast of the future and what I think will be important. But I don't reevaluate that forecast every day. I just as I don't reevaluate, you know, what neighborhood I should live in every day, I schedule a few deep reflection periods every few years to think maybe I should move neighborhoods. But otherwise, I kind of stick to my interim policies that I choose in these like longer, deeper reflection periods. Just as you don't replan your quarter every day, you replan your quarter maybe once a quarter or twice a quarter. And you don't plan your career or your strategy for, say, having a positive impact on AI every day you at some point need to commit to a path and follow that path for a little while to get anything done. So the question of who should be making timeline predictions, I think I think if I were looking at the Earth from a bird's eye view and thinking what would a reasonable civilization do, I think it, most AI researchers should at some point do the mental exercise of like mapping out timelines and seeing what needs to happen. But they shouldn't do it they should do it deeply once every few years in collaboration with a few other people doing it deeply once every few years, and then stick to something that they think is going to help steer AI in a positive direction based on that analysis you know, for a few years, get some good work done, and then reevaluate after a few more years so, so that they have a chance to pivot to a new research strategy if they discover something they think is important to focus on, but still they don't reevaluate so frequently that they don't get any research done. And I see a lot of people, people who have managed to be concerned about AI safety and control, I see a little bit of a tendency to too frequently reevaluate timeline 
analyses of what's going to happen in AI. I think that every day someone in the world should be analyzing AI timelines, but it should be a different person every day, perhaps. And then once they're done their analysis, they should choose a career path that will help them to benefit the world if that timeline comes to pass. So I think my answer to you is kind of everyone, but not everyone at once. Okay. And Anthony, was there anything you wanted to add? Uh, no, I think that is a good prescription. And I, I think there's, I mean, there's one other interesting question, I think, which is the degree to which we want there to be accurate predictions and, and lots of people know what those accurate predictions are. And this is something we actually thought about when we started to put AI prediction questions on Metaculus. You know, suppose this was actually really successful and we had really high confidence in the predictions that were coming out of this system. You know, is that a problem in some way? And I think you can certainly imagine scenarios in which it's a problem. You can, in general, I think more information is better, but it's not necessarily the case that more information that sort of everybody has access to is better all the time. And, you know, I'm interested in Andrew's views on this. I mean, it's, it's certainly something that we worried about in the sense, you know, suppose, for example, that I became totally convinced using Metaculus that there was a really high probability that artificial superintelligence was happening, you know, in the next 10 years. That would be a pretty big deal, obviously. I'd really want to think through before shouting that information from the rooftops, what effect that information would actually have on, you know, various actors, you know, national governments, companies, and so on. It could instigate a lot of issues. So I think there's, as with any, I think, information about potentially dangerous things, there are potentially information hazards having to do with predictions. And those are things that I think we have to really carefully consider. Yeah, so Anthony, I think that's a great, important issue. I don't think there are kind of enough scientific norms in circulation in general for what to do with a potentially dangerous discovery. Honestly, I feel like the discourse in most of science is a little bit it's a little bit head in the sand about the, in principle, feasibility of creating existential risks from technology. And even though I might not be so sure that any particular technology is going to pose an existential threat to you know, the continued existence of human civilization, if I zoom out, if I look at the world and I see you know, how much effort individuals are putting into ensuring that their, that their innovations are not going to lead to human extinction, I, I really just don't see a lot of effort, and I don't see anyone whose job it is to put in that effort. Mm -hmm. um, so you might think that it would be so silly and dumb for the Earth to accidentally have some humans produce some technology that accidentally destroyed all the humans uh, and a, a bunch of other life. But just because it's silly doesn't mean it won't happen, because... You know, you, you've, I'm sure you've made the mistake of like going to a party with five friends and it would be silly with five people going to the potluck for no one to bring something to eat. But what happened is that everyone thought someone else would do it. Uh, it's a bystander effect. And I think it's very easy for us to fall into the trap of like, well, you know, I don't need to worry about developing dangerous technology because if I was close to something dangerous, surely someone would have thought that through and, you know, made it a grant stipulation for my research that I, you know, I, I should be more careful. Surely someone would tell me if I was in the vicinity of something dangerous. And my colleagues aren't worried about ever producing dangerous artificial intelligence or, you know, dangerous synthetic viruses or whatever it is you could worry about. So, you know, I'm not worried myself. But you have to ask, whose job is it to be worried? And if the answer is no one on the way to the party was elected as the point person on bringing the food, 
then maybe no one will bring the food and that will be bad. So if no one in the artificial intelligence community is point on like noticing existential threats, maybe no one will notice the existential threats and that will be bad. And uh, the same goes for, you know, the technology that could be used by bad actors to produce dangerous synthetic viruses. So the first thing I want to say is, yeah, go ahead and be a little bit worried on everyone's behalf. It's fine. Go ahead. It's fine. Be a little bit worried. And with that worry, then, you know, what if what you discover is not a piece of technology, but a piece of prediction, like Anthony said? What if you discover that it seems quite likely, based on the aggregate opinion of a bunch of skilled predictors, that artificial general human intelligence will be possible within 10 years? Well, that, yeah, that has some profound implications for the world, for policy, for business, for military. And there's no denying that. I feel sometimes there's a little bit of an instinct to kind of pretend like no one's going to notice that AGI is really important. I don't think that's the case. I had friends in, in the 2010 vicinity who thought, you know, surely no one in government will recognize the importance of superintelligence in the next decade. And I was almost convinced. I, I had a little more faith than my friends, so I, I would have won some bets. But I still was surprised to see Barack Obama talking about superintelligence on an interview. So I think the first thing is not to underestimate the possibility that if you've made this prediction, maybe somebody else is about to make it too. That said, if you're metaculous, maybe you just know who's running prediction markets, who's studying you know, good prediction aggregation systems, and you just know no one's putting in the effort. And you really might know that you're the only people on Earth who have really made this prediction, or maybe you and only a few other think tanks have managed to actually come up with a good prediction about when superintelligent AI will be produced, and moreover, that it's soon. And if you discovered that, I would tell you the same thing I would tell anyone who discovers a potentially dangerous idea, which is not to write a blog post about it right away. <laughs> I would say, find three close trusted individuals that you think reason well about human extinction risk and ask them to think about the consequences and who to tell next. And, you know, make sure you're fair-minded about it. Make sure that you don't underestimate the intelligence of other people and assume that they'll never make this prediction. But, and Anthony, this is an advice to you. I wouldn't expect you to make this mistake. Uh, a person who's built an expert aggregation system does not, you don't remind me of someone who underestimates the value of other people's intelligence. But, I just, as a general piece of advice, I think it's important not to do that. And then kind of do like a rollout procedure. Like in, you know, in software engineering, you develop a new feature for your software, but it could crash the whole network. It could like wreck a bunch of user experiences. So you just give it to a few users and see what they think. Uh, and you slowly roll it out. And I think a slow rollout procedure is the same thing you should do with any dangerous idea, any potentially dangerous idea. You might not even know the idea is dangerous. You may have developed something that only seems plausibly likely to be a civilizational scale threat. But if you zoom out and look at the world and you imagine all the humans coming up with ideas that could be civilizational scale threats, maybe they're a piece of technology, maybe they're dangerous predictions, but no particular prediction or technology is likely to be a threat. So no one in particular decides to like be careful with their idea. And whoever actually produces the dangerous idea is no more careful than anyone else. And they release their idea and it, you know, it falls into the wrong hands or it gets implemented in a dangerous way by mistake. Maybe someone accidentally builds Skynet Somebody accidentally releases replicable plans for a cheap nuclear weapon. So if you zoom out, you certainly don't want everyone to just share everything right away. And you want there to be some threshold of 
just a little worry that's just enough to have you ask your friends to think about it first. Just if you got something that you think is like 1% likely to pose an extinction threat, right? That seems like a small probability. And if you've done calibration training, you'll realize that that's supposed to feel very unlikely. But nonetheless, that's, you know, if 100 people have a 1% chance of causing human extinction, well, someone probably has a good chance of doing it. And so if you just think you've got a small chance of causing human extinction, go ahead, you know, be a little bit worried. Uh, tell your friends to be a little bit worried with you for like a day or three. And then, you know, expand your circle a little bit. See if they can see problems with the idea, see dangers with the idea. And slowly expand, roll out the idea into expanding circle of responsible people until such time as it becomes clear that the idea is not dangerous or you manage to figure out in what way it's dangerous and what to do about it. Because it's quite hard to, you know, figure out something as complicated as how to manage a human extinction risk all by yourself or even by a team of three or maybe even 10 people. So you have to expand your circle of trust, but at the same time, you can do it methodically like a software rollout uh, until you come up with a good plan for managing it. And as for what the plan will be, I don't know. That's why I need you guys to do your slow rollout and figure it out. So super quickly, so that we can possibly end on a positive note, is there something hopeful that you want to add real quick? Well, I guess I would just say that, you know, the way I view it, pretty much every decision that we make is implicitly built on a prediction. You sort of predict the consequences of one decision or the other, and then you choose between them the one that you would like to have happen, and that's the basis for your decision. So I think that if we can get better at predicting individually, you know, as a group, as a society, that should really help us choose a more wise path into the future, and hopefully that can happen. Here, here. All right. Well, I highly encourage everyone to give Predicting a Try themselves and visit metaculus.com. And Anthony and Andrew, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having us. It's been fun. Thanks, Ariel. To learn more, visit futureoflife.org.